Today we are revisiting patient-derived organoids. And we started this conversation way back in episode 74 with Vicky Marsh-Durbin and Oksana Serenko. Do you remember that, Connor? I do. And I can't wait to see what new things we're going to learn today. We're back with a patient-derived organoids episode of Discovery Matters. My name is Matthias Silbauer. I'm a clinician scientist based at um, Cambridge University slash Cambridge University Hospitals or Addenbrooke's Hospitals. So I essentially split my time between looking after patients, 50% of that, and doing related research. And my area of clinical interest and expertise is pediatric gastroenterology. So essentially children who have problems with their digestive system, nutrition, or, or liver. And um, my lab is based at the um, Cambridge Stem Cell Institute, which is located at the Cambridge Biomedical Campus, directly next to the hospital. So in conversation with Matthias, I oversimplified. We know how I love to oversimplify. So Matthias, I asked him, I was like, so are you looking at kids with bad bellies and trying to help solve that? And of course, you know, it is much more complex than that. He's looking at creating or growing small organs that are going to help these kids have better digestive systems. And it's a big deal. Those are children who suffer from conditions called chronic inflammatory bowel diseases. So the two specific ones are Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So children who suffer from these conditions also complain about tummy pain, diarrhea, weight loss, but these are very serious conditions such that because of the inflammation in their intestine, these children have to take quite powerful medications that have a lot of side effects in a good proportion of them we are unable to control the disease with these medications, so they have to end up undertaking surgery. They end up with stoma bags. All of this has a major impact on, on their psychology, on their mental health, and also the entire family. So in my opinion, children being diagnosed with these conditions are amongst the most severe conditions in, in childhood that any child can be diagnosed with. For adults, these conditions are serious and painful. So just imagining that kind of pain in a child is pretty terrible. It is awful. And we have colleagues who have suffered from these and we know them well. You know who you are. So what drew Matthias to this kind of research? I was exposed to or interested in pediatric gastroenterology early on in my clinical training. And in fact, I have come across very early on patients diagnosed with these conditions and experienced the degree of suffering that that's caused them and their family. And, and no doubt that that has uh, motivated me um, to focus on these areas and, and trying to make, make a difference and make some progress. And this progress is partly being driven by him using organoids, is that right? That is 100% correct. And the importance of organoids as human models for these conditions cannot be understated. Traditionally, before organoids were invented, which hasn't been that long, around a decade, prior to that, people were doing research in the area of inflammatory bowel diseases, primarily using either animal models or cell lines. 
the problem with that is that mice or any other animals don't develop IBD. So they're really suboptimal models when we're trying to investigate or find out something that only affects humans. The second big issue is that the condition is really, really variable. So if you take 100 children, all diagnosed, let's say, with Crohn's disease, their disease is fundamentally different. These differences apply to which part of the intestine is sick, how severe the disease develops over time, whether it responds to treatment or not, whether there are additional complications and other organs affected. Okay, so so many different factors, and I guess that that makes the disease like really unique to each patient. So if you're taking cells from one patient who doesn't even have these conditions, you can't even reflect those variations in the model, so the models won't be good. Now, what does that mean for organoids? So with the development of organoids, for the first time, we're able to take tissue from a patient with that condition and grow these cells in a dish and perform experiments on. We can profile them, we can find out what is unique to these cells when we compare them either to healthy individuals, so children or adults who don't have the condition, or to other children who have what we believe is the same condition, but actually looks different. So let's say a child with very, what you may call a mild form of the disease compared to a very severe form of the disease. What's different? And because these organoids retain a lot of information that is specific to the donor, specific to that patient, we now have the opportunity to find out something that we were not able to do before. So that is a highly personalized and tailored approach, right? It is. Somehow, Matthias is able to take the information from a specific patient, learn from it, and then apply that to other patients. That's a just remarkable. So we've been hearing about personalized medicine and seeing examples of it for almost 20 years now. How does this accelerate the field? The first step, of course, is to, to find out in principle what's causing these diseases and why is it that there is no cure? Why is it that the chronic inflammation in the gut never goes away, regardless of what we do, regardless of what medication we give to them? By using organoids, I believe we may be able to make a big step towards in improving our understanding. And that is simply by comparing organoids that are derived from patients with disease, patients without disease. Looking at these cells, profiling them on a molecular basis, but also checking their function in a dish. In, in a sort of reproducible and comparable manner. How can we then directly increase or improve the um, life of these patients? There are various potential ways of doing this. Option one is if we find out that a specific cell type in the gut that is present in these organoids doesn't work properly, then Matthias might be able to find the new medicine that fixes that. So can he use these organoids to help in like new medical, new drug discoveries and then help create drugs that actually fix the underlying problem that is yeah. driven by these specific cell types? Yes. So how does that approach then compare to current treatments like the monoclonal antibodies for ulcerative colitis? We have quite a repertoire of potential medical treatments now, but 
Each individual treatment only works in approximately 40 to 60% of patients. That means 40 to 60% of patients we give a specific treatment to, they either don't respond at all, or even if they respond initially, they lose response over time. And the problem is that we do not know before we give a patient a treatment, whether they will or won't respond. So the ideal case is that we'd find a patient, we diagnose it with a disease, and then we have a test that tells us whether a treatment will work or not, or actually even better, whether exactly which type of treatment is the best at any given time. So what's the vision for organoids? Well, we diagnose a patient, we generate their organoids, and then we test all the available treatments. And the organoids will tell us whether a treatment will work or not. And I found this so interesting because I relate this then to a rehearsal, right? As you get this practice period with organoids. And I was interested to know whether Matthias would be creating organoids to prepare for a transplant. And if an organ is damaged in the patient, could an organoid be grown to transplant that into a patient? That's a good question. Um, as I said, we've long been interested in studying the intestinal epithelium, the inner lining of, of the gut. And before organoids, we were not able to grow these cells in a dish. What we've done before, you can profile them. You can take tissue samples, which we do routinely during endoscopic procedures, and then you can profile them and see what's going on. But this, it's a, a snapshot, and it's only ever an association with disease with a specific condition. And so when these organoid models came out, which was about um, 2009, 2010, I was quite fascinated, and I thought if this was to work, it would be amazing. It would provide completely new opportunities for us to study what we want to study in a patient-specific manner. This model was developed by a brilliant scientist called Hans Klevers from the Netherlands. I remember still we were discussing this, the paper that first reported these gut organoids in a journal club, as much as I was fascinated by the report, I thought we're never going to be able to set that up in our lab. It's just so complicated. It sounds so difficult, too many factors. And, and then we were really lucky a year or two later to um, meet one of the postdocs of Hans Klevers, who was in his lab at the time when all of this was discovered and developed. He then moved to Cambridge as a principal scientist in the Stem Cell Institute, and he helped us to establish the model in our lab. So the lining of the digestive tract, here we go. We know from our love of the microbiome that the gut is way more than just a nutrient extracting tube. Has he observed any interplay when it comes to the microbiome for these children's digestive conditions? Oh, don't we love discussing the microbiome as frequently as possible? And yeah, the microbiome is being increasingly considered as at least a key player in many diseases, if not the cause, not just in gut-related diseases, but almost any disease. I believe that with regards to microbiome research, we are really at a very early stage just because of the vast complexity and, and the difficulties that we might be getting towards being able to profile the microbiome, but then making sense of that, because again, it's a dynamic system. It's, it's not that you profile the microbiome of a patient today, and then you have all the answers. Well, it turns out that two days later, the microbiome has already changed dramatically. If you change your diet just slightly, 
you get a different microbiome. And so it's a moving target. How do you do that? How do you repeatedly sample? Nevertheless, to make some progress, as always in science, I think sometimes we just got to start small. And so what we're doing is to co-culture human organoids with different components of the microbiome and see how it responds. Starting super, super small to have a big impact. But there are limitations. Organs are more than just cells. It's complex. When it comes to reproducibility, this, this is a major issue. When you generate an organoid from a human patient, from a human sample, and set up organoids in, in a lab, you may introduce a lot of variation. It depends maybe on who sets the, the organoid up, what reagents are being used, what technique, what method, and so on. What needs to happen is to that labs are producing you know, protocols that allow stringent quality control and, and, and automation. So industry needs automation, needs reliable things that do not depend on, on humans anymore. And I think that is still a major challenge. The, the same goes for scaling organoids. A limitation there is also the tissue, the, num- the amount of tissue that you get from a donor. And what we found is that you can expand them indefinitely if you want, but the risk is that they then change in culture. So after you've cultured them for a few weeks or even months, let alone years, they may not be quite as representative of the donor that you've taken them from. If you really then want to study the gut, and if it comes to potentially transplanting a gut in a dish that can then be transplanted in a patient that doesn't have any functioning one, I think we are quite some time away from managing that. But again, we have to start small. And so we're working with uh, Professor Roshan Owens, who is an expert in designing novel chambers in which we can grow our organoids that contain the epithelium, but also introduce other cell types, like mesenchyme, lymphocytes, and also introduce other factors such as the microbiome. So we can increase the complexity of these organoids, thereby not only further improving and increasing the applications, but also making the models even more representative. As if Matthias has beckoned her, we now have Roisin here with us. And here is her origin story to warm us up. I'm originally uh, trained as a biochemist, so I'm from Dublin in Ireland. Did a degree in natural sciences. Thought I wanted to do chemistry initially, but then um, did a biochemistry practical and that was it. I loved biochemistry. I moved to the UK to do a PhD on protein structure and function, actually in host pathogen interactions, which I'll come back to later. And then went to the US, worked on tuberculosis for a while at Cornell University. And then at Cornell, I met um, somebody who was working on uh, electronic materials, but a very specific kind of electronic materials that use carbon-based materials, which interface with biology very well. And I got fascinated by that. And pretty much since then, a lot of my career has been working on those materials, uh, interfacing with biological systems and trying to develop new applications. 
Clearly, she had a diverse path, which brought her to organic electronic materials. Okay, so there must have been like an aha moment for her during that practical, right? It was a biochemistry practical. And now that I think about it, it was actually a very simple one. You had to try and understand how different amino acids connected. So you had a variety of sort of colored reagents. And then like a detective, you were able to work out what the sequence of the amino acids was. I just thought this was amazing. It was, you know, taking chemistry, which up until that point had seemed kind of mundane, but thinking about it in terms of biochemistry. And when I would talk to my friends and they would learn things like glycolysis or the citric acid cycle, I just thought it was amazing. I, I loved these cycles as opposed to other friends who thought they were the most boring thing ever. So biochemistry just, it was a flash. And up until that point, I really wasn't that sure. I knew I wanted to do science, but I didn't really have a particular angle. Returning to Roisin's work, organic electronic materials might seem like a bit of an oxymoron. We typically think about electronic materials as like the bits and bobs inside your mobile phone or your laptop, and it's all, they're made of like gold and silicon and so on and so right. forth, right? But in fact, there are many materials that have the ability to conduct electrons. And there was a Nobel Prize given for the discovery of these organic electronic materials. And originally they were used in what are called OLEDs, organic light emitting diodes, or OPVs, organic photovoltaics. And it was because of their ability to be flexible. They start off as liquid formulations, so you can actually you could weave them or knit them or make them into wearable sensors, which is what happened eventually. But around 2005, people started thinking, okay, these properties that make these useful for a flexible photovoltaic cell on a backpack could actually be very useful for biology. So Roisin went from becoming a biochemist looking at these organic electronic tools to understanding the gut-brain axis. I love this kind of movement across fields. How does it all fit together? Well, you remember at the beginning, I said I did my PhD on host pathogen interactions. So those were host pathogen interactions in the gut. It was a type of bacteria called enteropathogenic E. coli. So we thought about bacteria as being nasty. But then over the years, as people started to understand about the microbiome, we realized that actually there are a lot of very useful, beneficial microbes living in our system and that the gut brain axis is absolutely dependent on this very, um, well, it's a finely balanced ecosystem. And what I realized was that we didn't know very much about this. And I realized that I had an opportunity here. I had the background in host pathogen interaction, but that can also be host bacteria interaction. I had learned cell biology along the way. And most crucially, I had developed a suite of tools that would allow me to interface with biological systems. Now, at the time, I mean, even even today, but you know, certainly 15, 20 years ago, people were thinking about cells grown in the lab in 2D. Right? a layer of cells. But biology is not like that. Biology is three-dimensional. 
Observing a 2D layer of cells is perhaps easy for a biologist, maybe not so much for the rest of us, but for a biologist when using a microscope, but it's not very representative. Going beyond optical microscopy, what techniques can you use to interrogate biological systems? Well, it turns out that electrical methods are really, really very good. But remember what I said about usual electronic devices? They're rigid, they're hard, they don't interface well with biology. So it's just as if I was able to pull all of these strands of things. I, I had this impression I was a jack of all trades, which is a pejorative term, but actually it was very useful in this case because I had a lot of background that I could bring. And so when we started building these three-dimensional tissues, with integrated electronics, we were able to do what I think in biology is super useful, which is continuously read out, report on what's happening in a tissue in real time. And then it's not an artifact of, okay, I'm going to measure this. Um, I've made a beautiful gut on a chip and I'm going to measure it at the end. I'll tell you what happens on day 25, but you're not going to know anything about what happens at the beginning or during. So when we spoke to Roisin, I couldn't resist asking about similarities to the story of Frankenstein. And this is, after all, an amalgamation of organic matter and electrical sensor activity. Am I right? At the beginning, way back, Luigi Galvani in 1780s, he attached a, a frog, dead frog, to a copper wire and waited for lightning to strike. And then the frog's muscles move. Why? Because there's electricity inherent in biological systems. Biology depends on ions, but there we know that nerves have electrical impulses. And actually, people are starting to realize that Electricity, bioelectricity is something that we can try to understand, but we can also harness. And so we are going a bit a step further. What we're doing is we're integrating electrodes at the heart of tissues. So you could think about it as synthetic biology. But in an in vitro environment where we're trying to model disease and where we've made every effort to make that electrode as much like a tissue as possible, so it's almost invisible to the system, then it's like we've built in an additional functionality to the tissue. So when in biological system, you know, people who study biological systems, the biggest problem they have is how do I understand what's happening in there? How do I read it? How do I report on it? Then it's a built-in reporter and I don't have to somehow smush it onto a microscope stage and try and add a chemical that'll make it fluoresce. I mean, we do those things too to check, but what we'd really like is this innate um, sensing. And yes, as soon as we get sort of public acceptance that it's not so Frankenstein after all, then it'll certainly make our life easier. What about patients, though? Let's go back to the patients with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. What hope does Rasheen's work have for them? So one of the things we've really focused on recently is that understanding of how you know when a microbe in the gut could be beneficial or potentially harmful at some stages. 
And so what we wanted was a really good model of human guts to be able to understand that. Now, initially, we were using quite simple models, but recently we've had the opportunity to work with Matthias Silbauer and we're starting to harness organoid technology. So we can take patient biopsies who suffer from IBD and then we can integrate those um, cells into our three-dimensional models with the integrated sensing. And we can look at the interaction of microbes with those cells. And so we can't possibly test things on the patients, and that's not allowed for all kinds of good reasons. But if we can take a small biopsy and then make replicates, so we have like mini, mini guts on which to try different therapies or maybe a, a new microbe that's supposed to be beneficial, a probiotic. And so we could start to to look at different possibilities. And, and in the end, if, if we have patient-specific data, wouldn't that be much better? Organoids provide a way to amplify our ability to test different solutions. So what has surprised Rasheen during her work with electronic organoids? I suppose the thing that surprises me most, but it should be blindingly obvious, is that if you give cells the right sort of environment, they have all of the information inbuilt to generate a tissue that is what it looks like in the human body. Why? Because that's what they do. So when you take these stem cells and you put them into where, where you've really tried to make it mechanically the same, physically the same, and biologically. A lot of people just focus on the biological. You know, they add complex cocktails of, of media, but they forget about, well, what kind of form factor was it? Was it a, we know that in the intestine, for example, you have these, these crypt villa structures, and that makes a difference. It makes a difference to things like oxygen gradients and so on. Anyway, when you put the cells in the right environment, they do what they're supposed to do. And so people try so hard to get cells to go down the correct differentiation pathway to become the cell type that they want. And it's all very complicated, add this factor and that factor. But sometimes even without adding those factors, you can get the right cell type because you've given the cell a mechanical cue or like I said, a physical cue. You cannot program for the microbiome as you cannot anticipate its makeup. An individual's microbiome is changing daily, maybe hourly, maybe every other minute, maybe after you eat that package of cookies. Oops, I'm telling you too much. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, depending on each of us and what we eat and yeah, where we are. Depending on what you put in or on your body. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so what did Rasheen then have to do to f consider that kind of really complex interplay? There's a good quote, it was a statistician who said, um, all models are bad, but some are useful. I learned this from engineers, you can reduce things. You can have a reductionist model as long as you understand the exact right question. So you're right, the microbiome changes every day, it changes over life, it changes during pregnancy. It's an incredibly changeable thing. But if we ask very specific questions, so for example, we can compare if 
I take this strain of bacteria that's supposed to help with increased mental acuity. When you're doing Wordle, you get it in two instead of in three. Then can I see some sort of a product appearing that is known to correlate with increased brain firing? So I ask very specific questions. And indeed, if you look at the new FDA Modernization Act, which is encouraging the use of in vitro models, what they're saying is it's not going to be a single model. We can't make a model so complicated. It's got exactly your microbiome and it's got exactly all of your cell types. And But we could say I could ask a very specific question from this model and another question from another model. Another thing that Matthias has that's very cool is he has not only the organoids from individual patients, but they've kept the microbes. So they take microbiome scrapings at the same time. So we might have the potential in future to really make host plus microbe models. Currently, Roisin and her colleagues in her field are concerned about amplifying samples so they can test for lots of different treatments before administering it to patients people who build human tissues on devices and try and use those as surrogates, well, for the human and to replace animal models. It's low throughput. It's very hard to have lots of them and they're quite expensive. They usually use this kind of a well plate, about the size of a paperback book and it has multiple wells. How do we adapt our technology in there? And I like that practicality. I think that comes from working with engineers where You can't be in your ivory tower and think, oh, I want my model to be this and it's going to cost $100,000 every time I do a a sample. I have to be practical. So it's that combination of learning things from engineers, answering specific questions, getting lots of replicates so I can be sure about my data. The important takeaway is that both Matthias and Roisin are looking small small scale to create a big impact to improve the lives of patients who are really suffering with quite a severe condition. So, I mean, what an incredible field of study. Yeah, uh, it's just been a joy to kind of watch the field evolve over the last, you know, 15 years or so since we first started understanding that you could, you know, grow your own liver cells, human liver cells or human heart cells in addition and see them sort of evolve to develop those characteristics and then, you know, you can test stuff on them. It's brilliant. So let's turn to our sort of our new favorite part of the show sometimes. What have we learned this week? What I've learned literally this morning reading through um, my uh, paper's inbox, as it were, is a paper that was being published in Nature Communications by Feng Shi and James Evans at the University of Chicago. And they were looking at how do breakthroughs arrive in science? And guess what? We've been talking about serendipity a lot it turns out that it might not be the case that serendipity drives the most impactful science. They've built a series of models based on thousands of papers and publications, and they've found that surprise predicts outsized impact in science. So a surprising finding does predict outsized impact, but surprise just doesn't 
appear out of thin air. It turns out that surprise happens when disparate fields that are far away from each other in their disciplines are forced to work together in a research context. So when people from one field publish into another field, you get much more surprising impacts. And that drives really, really big impact in science. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, but you know what? It, even even if it turns out that serendipity isn't as, you know, magical or doesn't lead to discovery the way we think it does, what I get out of what you just described is it's that cross-pollination. Yes, absolutely. Cross-pollination anywhere, right? So you want diversity coming into your thinking, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about science or business or, or kind of friendship groups, right? You want different stuff in there because it makes yeah. it exciting. So what have you learned, Dodie? Yeah, well, the thing that I was really thinking about, remember that India recently landed on the moon. They did. India becomes the fourth nation to safely land a mission on the moon, joining the ranks of Russia, China, and the United States. Yeah, and that was, I mean, kind of surprising. Or for me, it was unexpected because I think I'm still in that phase where I look at, you know, the U.S. and Russia as the spacefaring nations, leaders of yeah. space exploration. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But India landed um, on the moon, and it was really interesting scientifically. And now, you know, you'll recall that way back in episode. 50, we were talking about biomimicry and space exploration and what... Growing mushrooms on the moon, or was it on yes. Mars? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. And so what can we learn by going out into space? And of course, India landed at high latitudes, 600 kilometers from the South Pole of the moon. And that means that they might be able to get at some of the ice uh, on the moon that maybe will inform future exploration or maybe find a new source for rocket fuel. And this was on nature. So there were other news articles that were about, you know, oh, this is amazing politically, or it's an amazing accomplishment for India and Russia had crashed its just mission. Just weeks before, yeah. Um, just weeks before. So big deal politically, but nature and, you know, shout out your lesson learned this week is from nature. So is mine. They actually go into what does that mean for science? And I think it was really interesting to learn is that it matters where you land on the moon. It matters what you're going to um, mm. examine and what that might mean for future exploration or even what that might mean to yeah, our life extraordinary. on Earth. I'd love to have been like a fly on the wall on that team, which was saying, okay, so we're going to fly something to the moon. What should we look at? And it's like, right. okay, so what are we going to do? What experiments are we going to put on board the yes. on, on board the probe and on board the rover? And right. I, I mean, just the idea of making a plan and deciding what to look at, um, absolutely, you know, hugely exciting. Our producer is Beth Armit Brewster. Editing, mixing, and supervision by Banda Productions. Music from Epidemic Sound. My name is Connor McKechnie. And I'm Dodie Axelson. I'm hoping, along with Connor, that you will rate us on Spotify or whichever platform you are using to listen to us. And let us know what you want to hear on a future episode of Discovery Matters. Bye for now. Thank you.